Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's an Aesop fable that goes like this. An old man, bent double with age, was gathering sticks in a forest. At last, he grew so tired and hopeless that he threw down the bundle of sticks and cried out, I cannot bear this life any longer. Death, come and take me. And as he said this, death appeared and said to him, What do you want, old man? I heard you call me. And he said, Please, sir. Would you kindly help me lift this load of sticks onto my shoulder? Okay, I know you don't realize the moral of the story. The moral of the story is be careful what you wish for. And this moral is so applicable to the Christian life. After all, we have perhaps asked the Lord many times over of some prayer request that we hope would be answered by him in the affirmative. But if we were to reflect on the idea that sometimes God's withholding of that so-called blessing is actually a kindness, a mercy, that if he should give us everything we wished for, it's possible that, that we would be miserably ruined, perhaps eternally. And if we think of the idea of Children, for example, and if you have a child, you know the type of requests that a young child can make to you. And they could ask you all sorts for all sorts of things. And if you were to give in to anything they asked for, it could actually lead to their death. And there's quite a number of things that they ask for that are incredibly harmful to them. So much more our God who knows everything about us, who is omniscient, who is almighty. And yet, if we were to ask God and say, God, give me all these things. And if you were to give everything we ask for, be careful what you wish for, because perhaps that could be to your ruin, eternally speaking. In our passage today, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that Jesus has been really in this bout with the Pharisees who are trying to trap him, trying to essentially kill him. And as he's responding to them, 
He's preaching to them. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. But that's the last thing they want to hear, and they're rejecting it over and over again. But what they fail to realize is that by refusing to hear, the consequences of their hardness of heart is catastrophic. They want him to stop. They want him to leave, and they will kill him. Eventually they do. But what the Pharisees don't realize is that by stopping him from preaching to them, they are driving the nails into their own eternal coffins. If you have friends who actually care about you, family members, sometimes they will speak truth into your life. That truth can be incredibly painful. It's something that you don't want to hear at all. But if they love you, they will still speak that truth. And be careful what you wish for. If you say, get out of my sight, stop saying that to me, and they actually stop, it could be to your ruin. Friends, family members who love you, who care for you, will say very hard things to you sometimes. Sometimes they don't say it in the best of ways. It's true. But if they really do care, they will say those hard things. And it is so critical that we have an open heart to that. At least to ask, is there anything that is being said that bears some truth that can actually be to my ultimate benefit? So be careful what you wish for because you might not like, in this passage, Jesus' words because they're warnings. And these warnings you do not want to face. And here are the things that you do not want to face. One, you do not want to face the end of all warnings. And I'll describe what that means in verses 21 through 24. Secondly, you do not want to face the end of a savior in verses 25 through 27. And then lastly, you do not want to face the end of Jesus in your life in verses 28 through 30. So first, the end of all warnings, something that we need to be careful of because we want warnings. Warnings are protective. If a sign that says, do not cross danger tsunami zone, if you go to Hawaii and you stand at the edge and a big wave comes and hits you, it can kill you. And so that warning is meant to say, step back, take a step, be, be aware of the situation. That's what Jesus is saying. And you do not want a day where Jesus will stop warning. And here we see the warning in verses 21 through 24. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In John chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus says essentially the same thing. But there is a difference. He says, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. As the Pharisees become more belligerent, Jesus begins to point out sin and dying in sin. That's the difference. It's, there's a progression of warning. And it's getting more dire as the Pharisees are closing their heart to Christ. If you look at verse 24, it speaks of, Jesus says that there are many sins that you will die of. You will die in your sins, plural. But in verse 21, it says you will die in your sins, singular. And I think the reason that is the case is that the many sins 
In other words, all the regular ways upon which we rebel and turn away from Christ, unless we repent, unless there is a true transformative change of our hearts, we will ultimately die of sin, our hardness of heart. So the accumulation of sins leading to the hardening and the rebellious and the defiant heart can make our hearts so stone cold to Christ that no longer are we going to respond at all. As Pharaoh experienced when he hardened his heart, we're also told eventually God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That the hardening of Pharaoh's heart internally, personally, God says, if that's what you want, I will make your heart so hard that there will be no way for you to turn. And it's essentially what Jesus is saying. Their hearts are so inclined against God that they have essentially placed themselves into a place of rejection completely. And so Jesus says, you will die in your sin. That's what ultimately keeps them from experiencing God's grace. Now, here's the thing is that Christians, we are sinners as much as a non-Christian. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that Christians sin less or they don't sin at all. Not at all. It's certainly true that we are at most, at, at very much unrighteous in our morality as anyone who knows Christ or not. But the difference is that we are not in sin because of Christ. Christ bore our sin, not just all sins, but the sin of our heart, our close-mindedness, this utter, complete unyielding of our hearts. We've, we've uh, had that borne by Christ at the cross. And so our hearts are not hardened to Christ and the gospel. We do not see the cross, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, foolishness as foolish. But instead, we see it as the power of God. So there is a stern warning that Jesus gives here that you must not pass by as these Pharisees are doing because he's telling them, I'm going away and you will seek me. And when he says I'm going away, what he's referring to is he's referring to the cross. He's going to suffer and die. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend and be with the father. And there will come a day where he will return again, no longer as a savior, but as a judge. And when that comes, Jesus warns, you will seek me. Many will seek him on that day, but he will not be found. That is to say that there is a limit to grace. I think so often we think of grace as something that is eternal, that lasts forever. In one sense, it's true. If you are saved by Christ at the cross, that grace that Christ has saved you by is eternal. The effect of that is eternal. But there is a time limit to grace for those who do not have faith in Christ. When you take your last breath, grace is no more for you. And that might sound so solemn, but that's the warning that Jesus gives. And you have to recognize, and here's the, the thing is that if you have a breath, you can still experience God's grace. This is good news, especially for those of you who have older parents, maybe you're older, and you're on your last breath, or you have a, a neighbor, a friend, a relative, someone who is in a coma, 
someone who is literally on their deathbed and they for their whole life have resisted Christ, do not stop sharing the gospel. By God's grace, even in the blink of an eye, if they truly believe in Christ, he can save that person. He does. I do think we will be surprised by who is with the Lord and who isn't one day. So as long as there is breath, there is grace. But once that breath is gone, there is no grace for that person. Once there is judgment, when Jesus returns again and the dead shall rise and he judges the whole world of all of humanity, there is no grace for those people. It's judgment alone. So you do not want to face Christ in that way. So he's saying, I'm preaching. And this is the warning that I give. You do not want to be putting Jesus off and saying, well, I'll, right now I'm a little busy. I don't really have time to give my life to Christ. You do not want to fool yourself into believing that you know, when, uh, you know Christ when you don't know him at all. You could hear about Jesus and the gospel. You could be emotionally moved by the gospel. But if you do not surrender your heart and your life to him, then you do not know him. Some can believe that the message of Christ is a good message. It's a moral message. Perhaps you've come here because you think, I want my children to be in a moral environment. That can convince one to live morally and righteously in a certain way. You might actually think that you've convinced yourself that you're a believer of Christ. But here's the real test. When there's a cost to following Christ, do you follow him? Or does the cost lead to an excuse? Jesus describes different people who come to him and say, I want to follow you. But first, Jesus, let me go bury my father. And if you've ever read that part of the New Testament, you might think to yourself, that's really harsh. I mean, shouldn't Jesus allow this man to bury his father? Another man says, let me first say goodbye. Let me first say goodbye to my parents, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, leave them, and first follow me. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that if he were to say, sure, go bury your father, or go say goodbye, he knows that that person after burying the father would say, you know, I have to take care of my field. I have to go take care of my family. There's always the next thing, something else that I have to do first before Christ. So Jesus understands that. And that's what he's calling us to here, because whether it's let me bury my father, let me say goodbye. Maybe it's let me first get out of debt. Then I'll follow you. Let me work really hard. I have all these student loans and I need to pay off these debts. And then I'll really, really pursue you, Christ. Let me finish med school. Then I'll really follow you. Let me get married first. Let me have children first. Let me put my kids through college. You know how this goes. It just keeps progressing to the point where you always have an excuse. When the cost of following Christ comes with the excuse, you know that person does not know Christ at all. And so many will seek Jesus, he says, but they will die in their sin. 
Sometimes what happens is trial comes your way. And when trial comes, dark times come, maybe it's at those times you cry out to Jesus. And you say, Lord, please heal me. I have this cancer. Once you heal me, then I promise I'll follow you. Or my marriage is really struggling. We've, we've, there's been so much tension. Please heal my marriage. Please bring restoration. And then after that, I'll follow you. I promise. Lord, we, we're really in financial trouble. I, I'm unemployed and I need to take care of my family. I, please give me a job and then I'll follow you. It's the same heart. If there's always a, do this, and then I'll, do, I'll follow you. The Lord knows. He knows that actually that heart pretty much, pretty often does not follow Christ. Even if they get what they want. And I've seen it happen. It is so tempting. So trials have the purpose of driving us to Christ. And so often they do. But it's the question of when you're there. Why are you trusting in him? What if the cancer doesn't go away? What if the job that you wanted doesn't happen? What if you don't meet the man or woman who's going to commit their life to you? What if you find out you can't have children? And maybe you have to think of other means, maybe adoption. So what you do with those dark, empty times really shows whom you follow. Do you follow yourself and your own motives or are you following Christ? Theologian A.W. Pink describes such a person. He says, you can be reformed but not transformed. And it's important to note the difference. That is to say that there can be some different character changes, but what hasn't happened is a transformation of your worldview, the way you view life your values, your priorities. The hard-hearted will not be convinced by miracles. We've been talking about this for numerous weeks. You know, the hard-hearted will not be convinced by kindness. And I think that sometimes we Christians think, if I present the gospel very kindly with a, sort of a winsome heart, if I bring some homemade cookies, then the person will be much more receptive to hear Christ. And then we get shocked when we only hear anger, bitterness. See, the hard-hearted will not be convinced by good works and by your manner of speech, even by forgiveness, even by a willingness to yield. I want to quote atheist Richard Dawkins one more time because I think there is a lot of insights into hearing the, the opposing view. And what he says is this, he says, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to have a tape recorder switched on because time and again, people like me are the victims of malicious stories after they're dead. People saying they had a deathbed conversion when they didn't. I'm going to have witnesses and a tape recorder switched on. He is betting his eternal soul, just like the Pharisees, that this Jesus Christ and his gospel is a sham. But look at the consequences. Be forewarned of what Jesus says in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Be careful what you wish for, that Jesus would stop warning you. Because as Richard Dawkins notes, nothing will convince him. 
but boy, is he betting everything on that idea. And by the way, there's a reason why when you are on your deathbed, why we hear so often people who have raised their fist to God throughout their life, suddenly when all else fails, they turn. It's because of that utter sense of helplessness. There is no place more helpless in this world than your deathbed. Next is the uh, end of a savior. We have to be careful what we wish for here because maybe we think, I don't want salvation. I don't need a savior. I don't want a savior. Verses 25 through 27, Jesus says this. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. All the Bible points to this one statement. God sent his son to save us from the power of sin and death forever. That's what the Bible's message is. 66 books, one message, all throughout, all saying and pointing to the same idea. God sent his son to save the world. And the Bible is this story, God's story. But there will come a day where there is no more salvation, no more savior. See, Jesus came once as a savior, and in this time period, he is savior. But when he comes again, he comes as judge. He's no longer going to come to save people from their sin. He's going to come to judge the world. And so he says in verse 25, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. You see his two parts of what his role is. One is much to say about you. At this point, it's preaching, proclaiming the gospel, the good news. But then eventually there's going to be judgment. Why do we spend so much time each week here in this pulpit talking about who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Because of verse 26. Verse 26 says, I have much to say about you. And that's what we need to do. We need to do what Jesus is doing. We need to tell others about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Jeremiah speaks about the message of God when he says this in Jeremiah 29. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hope we have this fire. The, the good news is so good to you that it literally is like a fire inflaming your innards, and you can't help but speak these words. Despite antagonism, opposition, fear, that you actually have to talk about Jesus. And like Jesus says, that we would have much to say about him. What an exhortation to say we need to know who he is and what he's done. We need to understand the good news of the gospel message. We need to be able to explain it to others. We need to believe it for ourselves and learn about it. And so here who's facing death threats will not stop speaking. Do you know how easy it is to say very little or something little different rather than the gospel message of Christ. See, the world doesn't mind religion as long as they can control the message. 
if you look at all the different totalitarian states of history, Nazi Germany, recent history, Soviet Russia, communist China, you know, there's one commonality when it comes to Christianity. All of them had some form of Christianity in them. The Nazis still had the Lutheran church and the Catholic church. The Soviet Russia had the Orthodox church. Communist China has the three self church. If you were to go into these countries at, in those periods, you would hear about Jesus, but you would hear a, a stripped Jesus that has nothing to do with the gospel. You'd hear moralism and righteousness. Actually, in our day, if you talk about Jesus from a religious perspective, people won't be bothered by it. Humanism doesn't mind moralism. That if we were to come here and give you an entertaining worship service where you were taught, hey, you should be a good moral person, uh, you should raise kids really well, learn how to do your finances well, and just be tickled and have fun and laughter and enjoy these groups, and if that was it, we could actually exist in any totalitarian state without a problem. They would actually like us because we're just part of the system. What is the difference is the gospel. The gospel to the world goes contrary to the world's idea. The world's idea is you can do it by your own power and strength. You are righteous in, inherently within yourself. The gospel says there's nothing you can do. You are unrighteous. You need a savior. You need salvation from sin. And that assumes that human beings are sinful, morally bankrupt, unable to actually please God on their own. The last thing that people want to do is to admit, I am wrong. I am a sinner. Just consider your closest relationships. Why is it, if you ever think about why in marriage, in parenting, in friendship, is it so hard to say, I'm sorry? But it's not just, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That combination, try it. It's very difficult. It really is hard to say that in any relationship. It's hard to say it in the church. Because internally within us, that goes against our very default nature of believing we're always right. And so to have the gospel is transformative because it changes the way we view the world, who we are, who, who, what government is like, who God is. And that is revolutionary. We need a savior. But the fact of the matter is, is that the world wants the end of a savior. They don't want to hear about salvation anymore. But be careful what you wish for, because we need a savior. Lastly, be careful what you wish for, because the world, and perhaps us, we want the end of Jesus. We don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. Again, as long as we don't talk about Jesus, we talk, or this sort of nice, kind Jesus, a moral Jesus, that that's it. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 28 through 30. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You know, it's remarkable 
when Jesus tells them, when you have lifted up the son of man, it's not if, it's not this is a possibility. For Jesus, he knew he was going to suffer and die at the hands of these men. And the idea that he knows this is the case, it's a surety, it's a certain thing. And that he's not running away, he's not hiding, he's not lessening the message because he knows that as he's saying these things, it's riling them up. No, quite the opposite. He goes full in, very much knowing and expecting that these very words that he's speaking is actually making them more angry to want to kill him. And so he knows he's going to suffer and die for us. He also knows that after he does, many are going to turn to him as savior, as he says in verse 30. Many believed in him. But the more he speaks, and this is the interesting thing about the cross, the more he speaks of suffering and death and dying on the cross, the more they hate him and despise him. Again, people do not mind Jesus, but they do despise the cross. The Apostle Paul, who knows a lot about this topic, writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, the word folly in Greek is where we get the word moron. That, and think about that. The, for the word of the cross is moronic. And that's exactly what the world thinks of the cross and those who follow and believe in the cross. They're a bunch of morons. So, because there's nothing that brings more anger and vitriol and violence than to tell someone that you're not good enough and you need a savior, that you can't fix your own problems in life. You can't solve your deepest problems with your intellect and your passion and your effort. And if you actually believe in this cross, well, that's moronic. You're a moron if you believe that. It's, it's interesting to note, though, that only when you get to your most helpless state, which is why the deathbed is that place. Because all of your work, all of your labor, when you're on your deathbed, it's essentially meaningless, everything. And that's when you suddenly realize, as Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins understands perhaps all too well, is it's so tempting to say, there must be a God. The Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant minds of his day. And he thought that Christians were a bunch of morons. And so he wanted to take these foolish morons, go to Damascus, drag them all back, bring them to prison, uh, awaiting execution. And so he did everything he could, this incredibly brilliant man, to get rid of these people of the cross who are a bunch of morons. And yet this is what he proclaims in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why is this the case? Why did Paul, who did everything he could to slaughter, to imprison people who believe this rubbish, this garbage, that suddenly becomes a person who says, this is all I want to know. Because if you ever read Philippians chapter three, it's sort of his 
his mantra, his screed, his, you know, his agenda for why he's so awesome. I mean, chapter three, if you ever read Philippians three, just have a subtitle. Paul says, I am awesome. And then he goes through a list of here's why I'm awesome. Here's why I'm smarter than you. Here's why, and that's his list. But then eventually says, it's a bunch of trash. How does that guy go from that person to suddenly say, I'm going to follow this cross? It definitely is not going to be, he tried harder. Christ met him on that road. The Lord intervened into his heart and he changed his way of thinking. He saw the end of himself actually as life itself. We don't want the end of Jesus. You do not want to go there. Be careful what you wish for. Because the end of Christ means despair, depression, destruction, and death. We actually need the opposite. You need more of Christ every moment of every day, especially in times of trial. And you don't want the answers that you think. You need to want Christ above all. At Thanksgiving, for the 80 people who are gathered here, I shared from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And the whole point of that verse, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That verse, the answer to worry and anxiety, is actually prayer with thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving sets up the prayer. It's saying, before you even pray this prayer and asking for things, be thankful for whatever God should decide to give you. Know that it's actually absolutely your best for you. How many of us, looking retrospectively in our Christian life, if you're a Christian, you've been a follower of Christ for a while, and you look back and maybe you've asked for things throughout your life. Anyone here, and I, because I have these, look back and say, oh God, thank you for not giving me that. <laughs> thank you for not allowing me to perhaps meet that person and start a relationship with that person that I prayed in that moment, please, oh God, give me that person or give me that job or give me that call, whatever it might be. The Lord has your life in his hands. And what he's telling you is, be careful what you wish for. Be thankful for Christ and trust. I think what C.S. Lewis says it best. First wish for heaven and earth will be thrown in. And that's how you have to see it. You pursue Christ and you trust that God has your utmost best in mind. That is revealed most at the cross. The cross is a place of intense suffering and sorrow and misery. And yet it is through that same suffering and sorrow and misery of Christ that brings about our utmost joy. From destruction and death comes life eternal. We need to remember who Jesus is, what he has done for us to be finally free. Let me conclude with this story by Richard Phillips his pastor and theologian, he says this, the geographical center of London is Charing Cross. It's in London city, there's a intersection and it's called Charing Cross. They built it with the cross in the center of the city. It is said that from Charing Cross, 
You can find your way to anywhere else in London. A little boy was once lost and a policeman, wiping away the lad's tears, asked if he could have him taken home. The boy replied, oh no, sir, take me to the cross and I'll find my way home. I hope that's your plea. Take me to the cross and I'll find my way home. That's the Christian's cry. We do not seek after answers to life. We seek after Christ. We do not want the end of Christ. We want all of Christ. And so it's for this reason we come to this table. We don't do this because it's a ritual. We do this every week to remind you, come to the cross. You'll find your way home. If your week has been a week of wandering, you've been lost, you're, you're confused where to go, and it's been hard. Every time you take the bread and the wine, and you're a believer of Christ, and you eat it and you drink it, you are coming to the cross, you're remembering where home is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us through the cross of Christ, this place of foolishness, of being a moron to the world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh Lord, for those who have hardened their hearts to you, they approach you with skepticism. Like the Pharisees, believing, hearing the words, but as it's being said, there's a slow hardening. God, there is nothing that we can do to, con I can't convince that person. So Holy Spirit, we do what only you can do, which salvation belongs to you. Would you break the hardened, stoned heart here today? Make it a heart of flesh. Melt away the ice. Open eyes and ears to yourself today, O oh Lord, so that the cross of Christ would be sweet, so that we come to that cross and we find our way home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.